Mark chapter 16, verses 2 through 8. Mark chapter 16, verses 2 through 8. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He ain't here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they, were tr they, were, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you'd speak to us mightily by the power of your word and spirit. I thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. The crazy thing about this resurrection experience is that the people closest to Jesus didn't understand it. Mary and Martha didn't get it. Jesus used to kick it at their house with their brother Lazarus. I mean, he would spend nights with them. He would sit up and talk to them all night. They would make food and sit around, and he would talk to the three of them. All They knew his teaching. He even showed up at their brother's funeral and raised him from the dead. Yeah. So if anybody should have understood this, it was Mary and Martha. Yeah. But they get to the tomb, and he's not there, and they run away scared and trembling. They're greatly afraid because they had no clue who he was. And the disciples should have got it. I mean, they lived with him for three years, walked with him, talked with him, followed him everywhere, slept in the same room with him, showered with him, clothed, I mean, bathed, like, every, like they were together all the time for three years. And I mean, he would talk to the multitudes in parables, but to the disciples, he would take them into the inner room and he would explain to them clearly what he was talking about. So if anybody should have understood, yeah. it was the disciples, but they didn't understand. And notice that the angel tells Mary and Martha, go tell his disciples and Peter. Why did he have to emphasize Peter too? <laughs> tell his disciples and Peter. Because Peter was the guy who betrayed him on the night he was crucified. The guy who denied him three times, swore up and down that he didn't even know who he was. So when the angel said, tell his disciples and Peter, what he was literally saying is, he still considers Peter one of his disciples, even though he messed up, yeah, yeah, yeah. even though he betrayed him. Tell Peter, this is for you too. Yeah. Tell his disciples and Peter that he's not here, that he's risen as he said, meaning he had already told them what was going to happen, and it happened, and they were still confused. Yeah. The moment of their greatest confusion, in hindsight became the source of their greatest clarity. The moment of their greatest confusion, in hindsight became the source of their greatest clarity. 
You see, the disciples walked with Jesus for three years, watched him work miracles for three years, watched him heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse the lepers and cause the lame to walk and the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. They saw him cast out demons. They saw him walk on water. They saw him multiply bread and fish to feed 5,000. And they sat under hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of his teaching. But there was something missing, no matter all that all of those miracles could not fill in this, this void of knowledge in their hearts. There was no amount of teaching that could have ever filled that gap. There were two things that had to happen before they could actually say, we know him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to understand those two things, we've got to go back to Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus takes his disciples to this place called Caesarea Philippi. And in Caesarea Philippi, it was a Greco-Roman pantheon where all of the Greco-Roman gods were, you know, like Zeus and Apollo and, and all of those, you know, statues to all these gods were there. And there in the midst of this pantheon, he asked his disciples a question. Who do people say that I am? Let's see if people know anything about who I am. And his disciples say, some say you're John the Baptist. Others are saying you're Elijah. Other people are saying you're Jeremiah. Other people are saying you're the prophet. And then he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, I got this one, y'all. Raise his hand real quick. Jesus says, yes, Peter. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You are the Christ. The word Christ, Christos, is actually a Greek term that don't make any sense. It means smeared one or oiled one. It's a translation of the Hebrew term Mashiach, which means Messiah. You're the Messiah. The word Mashiach or Messiah means anointed one. It was the imagery in ancient Israel was the one upon whom God puts oil. If God puts oil on you, that means he set you apart and made you a deliverer. Yeah. You're the deliverer, the one we've been waiting for, the one we were talking about, the prophets spoke about for hundreds of years. You're the guy we've been waiting for. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. Translation, you didn't get that from your time in Bible study. Yeah. You're not a good enough student to have figured that one out. Yeah. You did not chat GPT that and get that answer. Yeah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that. There's no way you could have figured that out on earth. My father showed you that. You just got that by revelation. My father revealed that to you. My father who is in heaven. And then he changes his name. His name up to then was Simon. He goes, I'm changing your name now. I say that you're Peter. Yeah. Peter, Petros means rock. He goes, and upon this rock, I'll build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. We don't have time to unpack all of that. But basically, Jesus was saying, congratulations, Simon. And that revelation just made you the rock, unmovable. And then Jesus goes on to say, oh, and by the way, let me tell you what it means that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. They're going to nail me to a cross and crucify me. And then on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Yeah. And Peter goes, let me talk to you for a second, Lord. Takes him by the arm, pulls him, let me talk to you for a second, Lord. And takes him into the other room. He goes, what's going on, Peter? That will never happen to you, Lord. That's ne you stop talking like that. Yeah. You're going to be handed over and crucified and killed. Don't you ever say that again, Lord. That will, it says Peter rebuked him. 
I said, that will never be. You shut your mouth, Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you do not consider the things of God, but the things of man. And then Jesus goes back in the other room and continues his teaching. What's crazy is that Peter went from speaking by divine revelation to speaking by divine deception yeah. in the same conversation. Yeah. Yep. He speaks the first thing and Jesus says, that was God. He speaks the second thing and Jesus goes, that was Satan. Yeah. Wow. Yep. The first thing was the revelation, you're the Christ. Jesus interprets that, saying that I'm the Christ, the Messiah, means that I'm the deliverer, right? Well, let me tell you how I'm going to deliver. I'm going to deliver through my death. And Peter says, no way. No way. And Jesus goes, shut up, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You don't consider the things of God but the things of man. Peter knew that he was the Christ, but he didn't know what it meant that he was the Christ. There's a lot of people in the world that talk about, oh, I love Jesus Christ, I love Jesus Christ, but have no idea what it means that he is the Christ. Yeah. Knowing that he's the Christ will not save you. Knowing him as the Christ will save you. What was missing? It's like he had the truth, but there was something missing. Yeah. The disciples had Jesus with them, but there was something missing. The thing that was missing was the cross. The cross until they met him at the cross, until they saw him at the cross, until the cross, the content, the meaning, the significance of everything he said was missing from their hearts and minds. He had to go to the cross before they could look back on everything he said and did and say, ah, that's what it was all about. And the whole point of this message is that knowing the unknown Jesus begins by meeting him at the cross. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for the good. To those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Yeah. That word purpose is peculiar because the word purpose in the Greek is prothesis. Say prothesis. 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 Now, here is a key to understanding the New Testament. If you, a lot of people, they, they do word studies on New Testament. Let me tell you how to do a word study. I'm going to give you a little bit of history. In the 4th century B.C., Alexander the Great conquered the entire Near Eastern world. And here's what Alexander would do. If he conquered your country, he would take a sizable percentage of your population and spread them out across his empire. Why would he do that? He did it so that you would never be able to rise up and overthrow him. He did it to weaken every country that he conquered. Yeah. Well, sure enough, he comes into Israel and he takes a sizable population and disperses them across the ancient Near Eastern world. It was called the Diaspora. Now you have Jewish people, Israelites, living all over the Greco-Roman Empire, and guess what Alexander does? He introduces Greek as the language of the empire. So now, to get around in the empire, you've got to know Greek. Everybody learns Greek. 
Within one generation, the pilgrims of the dispersion or the diaspora don't speak Hebrew anymore. They only speak Greek. So what they did during this period was they translated the Old Testament scriptures into Greek. And that Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures was called the Septuagint. And they would send, they sent that translation all across the Greco-Roman world. And in every city where there was at least 10 Jewish men, they had what was called a synagogue. It was a place of Jewish worship across the world, outside of Jerusalem. And in the synagogue, they read from the Septuagint. The disciples, the 12 disciples, all understood and read from the Septuagint. So when they write the New Testament letters in Greek, the meaning behind the words that they use comes from the Septuagint. So when you look at the word prothesis in the Greek, I wanted to go to the Septuagint to find out how was that word, what Hebrew word was that Greek term used to translate? And I was blown away. It didn't make any sense to me. Because the word that that Greek word prothesis was used to translate is the word translated showbread. Follow me. Every every first day of the week in the tabernacle or temple, the priests had a ritual. They would bake seven loaves of bread, and then they would lay them out on the altar before God. It was called the showbread. They would leave it there all week long, take it away, bake a new seven loaves, and put them out. There's two significant numbers in, in, well, there's a number of significant numbers, but the two that come to mind are seven and 12. Yeah. 12 represents all Israel, but seven in the Bible is greater than 12. Whenever you see a seven, it's greater than 12. 12 represents all Israel, seven represents all creation. Seven is the number of perfection, of completion, of everything. They laid out seven loaves of bread, not 12. Why? Because it was not a representation of the simple fact that Israel is presented to God. Everything is presented to God. The showbread was an illustration of the fact, God, all of creation is presented before you. Everything is presented before you. In other words, the showbread was Israel's prothesis. It was there. The word means to show forth or to display or to illustrate. It was Israel's prothesis to God. It was Israel saying, we are here because we believe that we are yours, and not only we are yours, but all of creation is yours. It's all laid out. The showbread is laid out before God. Now go back to Romans 8, 28. Called according to God's prothesis. Israel's prothesis was loaves of bread. But God's prothesis was also bread. The one who said, I am the bread of life. Now you understand what he meant when he said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the showbread of God. You lay out seven loaves before God. God lays me out. And the, the, and the core of God's prothesis in Christ is the cross. That is the place where he's lifted up, put on display before the entire world. Stripped naked and presented before the entire world. Israel laid the showbread before God and said, we are yours. And God puts Jesus on the cross before the world and says, I am yours. Wow. 
And so Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, when he talks about the prothesis of God, which he accomplished in Christ. The purpose of God, which he accomplished in Christ. How did God accomplish his purpose in Christ? By leading him to the cross, by empowering him to take the sin of the world upon himself. In other words, it was as if God were crying out. Matter of fact, Paul would say this later, that in the cross, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not not counting men's sins against him. And through the cross, God cries out and speaks that word of reconciliation that cries out, be reconciled to God. You see, there was no amount of seeing miracles and hearing teachings and, and walking with him and eating of the bread and, the, and the, the fish that could have taken the place of the cross. All of it led to the cross. All of it pointed to the cross. The cross gave meaning to all of it. Without the cross, without the cross, you have no clue who Jesus is. That's why we used to sing that song, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burdens of my heart rolled away, where I first saw the light. The beginning of light was the cross. The beginning of my knowledge of Jesus was the cross. If you come to him, you got to come through the cross. You can't skip the cross. And, and this is the, one of the greatest problems in our world today is everybody wants to come to Jesus, but not through the cross. That's why Good Friday, there's 30 people there, and Easter Sunday, there's 300. Because we want to go straight to the resurrection. He's alive, but we don't want to stop and consider that he's alive has no significance if he didn't die. That the power of the resurrection is the cross. In all of his miracles and his teachings and his walking on water and everything he did, he was hidden. But in the cross, he's put on display. In the cross, he's clearly seen. You meet him at the cross and you can say, the Jesus I didn't know, I know now. The unknown Jesus is made known to me now. Why? Because I see him at the cross. Amen. You know, Somewhere around 18 years ago, 17 years ago, I was working on my Ph.D. at Regent University in Virginia, and I had to go to Virginia multiple times a year. One day I'm in Virginia, and I had to be at a seminar at this particular hotel, and I was running late that day. And as I'm rushing up the steps of this hotel to go to this seminar, this man, random man stops me. Excuse me, excuse me, sir. I said, yes. Are you going to the such and such seminar? I said, no, 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 I've got another seminar. And I'm trying to hurry off. And he goes, I'm so sorry to stop you, but I feel led to tell you my life story. <laughs> now, the first thing that transpires in me is I'm thinking, get thee behind me. <laughs> you, know what? you are a hindrance to me. Because I thought my purpose was to be in that seminar. But the Holy Spirit very quickly spoke to my heart and said, stop and listen to everything this man says. So I said, okay, go ahead. And he starts back when he was a child. When I was three, I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus. <laughs> Let my people go. <laughs> Send Moses quick. <laughs> he starts telling me the story about how when he started school, 
For some reason, all the other kids could learn their ABCs, but he had trouble learning his. And all the other kids by first grade could learn to read small words, and he somehow couldn't read anything. And his teacher would humiliate him publicly in front of the class. Then he'd go home, and his parents would beat him and call him stupid and idiot. Whenever family members or friends would come over, they would humiliate him and talk about how stupid he was. And this went on for years until he became an adult and was diagnosed with dyslexia. And then as an adult, he realized, I'm not stupid. I've got a real problem. I've got a real handicap. And the brokenness and the bitterness of, they didn't understand me. They rejected me. And he said he carried around this deep pain in his heart. And as he's telling me the story, he said, my pastor called me one day and said, I think I can help you. And he said, I went to the church to meet the pastor, and he took me into his office, and he had three chairs sitting there. And we both sat in a chair, and there was an empty chair. He said, I want you to imagine your teacher is in that chair. Say whatever you need to say to your teacher. He said, and I screamed and I cried, how could you, and why, how could you treat me, a child, that way? He said, now imagine that your mother's in that chair. And he said, and I screamed and I cried, how could you? Now imagine your dad is in that chair. He said, I screamed and I cried, how could you? He said, now imagine God is in that chair. He said, when he said that, I fell out of my chair on the floor. And I wailed and I screamed and I cried. And all I could say over and over again was where the hell were you? And when he said that, I felt like I was going to explode inside because I knew exactly why God wanted me to talk to this man today. And I stopped him. I said, did he give you an answer? And he said, yes, he did. But his face was not convincing. I said, what's the answer? He said, he was there. He was watching me. He was hurting for me. I said, no, 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 no. Where was he? I said, I know he was there. He was watching me. He was hurting for me. He was feeling for me. I said, no, 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 no. That's not where he was. He was on the cross. When you were being rejected, he was being rejected. When you were being humiliated, he was being humiliated. When you were being beaten, he was being beaten. When you were being marked, he was being marked. He wasn't standing there looking at you, feeling sorry for you. He was on the cross suffering with you. He was looking through all the ages and calling your name from the cross with nails in his hands and feet saying, I'm here. And when you meet him and you see him and you see the marks on your soul, they match the marks on his hands and in his side. He, was, he would bore your suffering. He was on the cross when you were walking through your deepest suffering. He was suffering with you on the cross. And that man broke and wept and wept and cried and cried. And I said, I got to go to my seminar. See you later. (laughs) But he grabbed me. He said, before you go, give me your email address. I gave him my email address, ran off to the seminar the next day or maybe the next week, a few days later. He sent me an email. And this is what he said. I never understood the cross before. 
It was always about the suffering of Jesus, not about my suffering. It had nothing to do with me. And I felt guilty because I wanted to be a Christian, but everybody would watch Passion of the Christ and cry, and there was no cry in me. I couldn't feel sympathy for Jesus, and I didn't know why, and I thought there was something wrong with my faith because I couldn't cry for Jesus. He goes, but when you told me that he was on the cross, for the first time in my life, the cross became real to me. And I went to church that Sunday, and we sang, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burdens of my heart rolled away and suddenly I didn't see him as an abstract distant sufferer but as the one who took all of my suffering and all of my pain and all of my shame and all of my humiliation and he was not just dying for me he was dying with me he was not just suffering because of me he was suffering with me he said I've got a new lease on life And isn't it interesting that at the very moment Jesus reveals himself to this man in his death, what the man experiences is new life. You want to walk in newness of life, you got to meet Jesus at the cross. The life comes through the death. The life comes through his death. Our life in him comes through his death. You got to meet him at the cross. And his own disciples ran from the cross, all except one. His own disciples were confused at the cross, all except one. His own disciples turned and walked away and went and hid in an inner room at the time of the cross, all except one. And he didn't count it as betrayal. He came back and redeemed them. He came back and and retroactively revealed himself to them in the cross. Do you realize what baptism is? Baptism is a living drama. When you go down under the water, you go down in the likeness of his crucifixion. Where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. That's what baptism dramatizes, that I've met him at the cross and I died with him there. But when you come out of the water, you come up in the likeness of his resurrection. Meaning because I met him at the cross and died with him there, I also came out of the tomb with him. Come on, somebody. After the cross, after the resurrection, suddenly the disciples look back on everything he said and did and go, now we get him. Of course. Now we get him. Now we get it. Now we know him. Now we know who he is. Now the unknown Jesus is known to us. He was a mystery, but now he's a revelation. Now we know him. Why? Because we've come through the cross. We've come out of the empty tomb with him. Now we know him. Now we get him. Now we understand. Let me tell you something that across this world, there are even believers who have walked with Jesus, but don't get him. Who have listened to Jesus, but don't get him. 
who have believed in Jesus but don't even get the Jesus that they believe in, that you believe in him and you even trust him for your salvation, but he's still unknown to you. But I've got good news for you today that he is the prothesis of God. He is the bread of life, and God presented him before before the world on the cross. He is the offering for sin. He is the first and last, the firstborn from the dead. And it was there on the cross that he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Come on, somebody. Come back, worship team. Come back. In 1995, I had the privilege of going to Israel. Two experiences there I'll never forget. The first was visiting the Garden of Gethsemane. There are trees in that garden that are more than 2,000 years old that were there when Jesus was there. And the stone where he wept, they've built an altar around it. And they have to guard it day and night because people have chipped away at it, taking pieces of it. Now it's a little nub, but it's still there. And I remember kneeling before that stone and reflecting upon the agony of my Lord in that garden. And I wept, and I wept, and I wept. But two days later, we went to the empty tomb. And we stood in that tomb. And folks, I can verify that he is not there. Mm. There was a song that we used to sing since I was a little boy. It said, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds my future. And life is worth a living just because he lives. And I never understood it until that day. Because what suddenly made sense to me on that day was that if he bore all of my pain, all of my shame, all of my condemnation and all of my sin, all of my rejection and all of my affliction, if he carried all of that from my past, then there's nothing that I can walk through that can ever separate me from his love. means all fear is gone. There's nothing I could ever walk through that could separate. This is, this is the confidence with which Paul speaks, where he says that nothing can separate me. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other created thing can ever separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm convinced I'm fully persuaded. Why? Because I met him at the cross. And I saw him there not just as a lonely sufferer, but as one who is not only dying for me, but with me. With me. (laughs) You know what it's like for somebody to be with you? I remember my first year of college. I didn't get it. College is different than high school. And they were like, you got two classes on Mondays and Thursdays, two classes on Wednesdays and Fridays. 
or Tuesdays and Fridays, Wednesdays you got off. I'm like, what kind of schedule is this? I'm used to being in class from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. So I went to the office, I signed up for four more classes. I'm like, shoot, I'm gonna get this degree in two years. This is not, not a problem. Not realizing that you need that extra time to be studying, doing homework, reading those books. Halfway through the semester, I was at the end of my rope. I, I mean, at the end of my rope. But I was so far, I was so deep in the deep that I didn't even know I was in the deep. You know what I'm talking about? You ever been there? Where you think you I? But all it takes is for somebody who loves you to look in your eyes and see that you ain't I. I remember I came home one evening and my mother's sitting at the table, at the dining room table. I just walked by. She said, hi, son. I said, hi, mom. She goes, wait, what's wrong? I was like, what do you mean, what's wrong? I'm fine. No, 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 son. What's wrong? You remember this, mom? What's wrong, son? I'm like, mom, I'm totally fine. Nothing's wrong. No, son. What's wrong? And all of a sudden, it was like the damn burst in me. <laughs> and I went, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> and I fell on the floor. I was just bawling and crying. My mom came and got on the floor next to me and took me in her arms. And you know what she did? She didn't try to fix it. She just cried with me for a minute. That's what it's like when somebody bears your sorrows, communicates their presence to you in the midst of your pain. This is the living image of who Jesus is. This is what the cross is all about. The pain of all minds, all hearts, all bodies was laid upon him on the cross. Every moment of human suffering that has ever been endured by any human person was laid on him on the cross, past, present, and future. This was the power of the cross, that on the cross, God took all of the sin, shame, and pain, and suffering of the world and placed it on his son. This was the overwhelming burden of it, that he, what he bore on the cross was not nails. What he bore on the cross was not a crown of thorns. It was all of the sin and all of the shame and all of the pain and all of the suffering and all of the rejection of the world and when you can look into his eyes on the cross and see your pain in his eyes see your shame in his face see your rejection in him that is what heals you even psychology says that trauma is when you walk through a terrible situation alone Jesus is the answer to the trauma of the ages to, all, to, to the sum total of human trauma. Jesus is God's presence in the midst of our forsakenness saying, here I am. Here I am. Here I am. At the cross. At the cross. You say, why are you talking about the cross so much? This is Resurrection Sunday. Of course. But you can't get to the resurrection without the cross. It was the two ladies who were still with him at the cross that he first revealed himself to at the tomb. Very early in the morning. They got there to mourn and God had already done it. They, got, they went there to weep and God had already fixed it. They went there to grieve and God had already reversed it. 
They went there. See, listen, when you meet him at the cross, you go back to the very place of your pain and discover that it's already done, that God's already healed it, that God's already broken it, that God's already set you free. You go there to mourn and discover that God's already done it. He's already reversed it. And all we have to do is come to the cross. He's still there waiting for you at the cross. Bow your heads with me. Father, I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would save souls right now. Lord, when we talk about the salvation of souls, we love to make it a doctrinal thing or a moral thing. Stop doing the following things and start doing the following things and start believing the following things. When, Lord, all of those things are secondary, what it's really all about is coming to Jesus at the cross. And, Lord, I pray that every soul under the sound of my voice, both in this room and the online, those who listen to this podcast even in years to come, that there would be something on the inside of every soul that would cause us to get up and run to Jesus at the cross. Run to the cross. He's there. He's waiting for you there. Father, I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would touch every heart, touch every soul. Cause these words to settle into every heart and bring freedom. And if you're here for the, today and you're ready to open your heart to Jesus even for the first time, I just want to invite you, I'm going to invite everybody to say this prayer with me. Just repeat after me. Just say, Father, I come to you in the name of your son, Jesus. And I thank you that you gave your son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I come to the, the cross today. Jesus, I come to your cross today. And I see in your eyes that you've taken all of my shame, all of my pain, all of my trauma, was laid upon you. Thank you. I believe in you. I pray for newness of life to be born in me because of what you did for me. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you that you're alive. Make me alive in you, I pray and teach me to walk with you. And I'll give you all the glory in your holy name. Amen. Now listen. The worship team's going to come back and they're going to lead us in one more song of worship before we close the service. But if you're here today, if you prayed that prayer sincerely for the first time, I want to invite you to come to the front at the end of the service. You can actually come anytime, even while this song is being sung. And we have leaders here who would love to pray with you because the one thing that Jesus taught us is that walking with him is not something that we're designed to do alone. We need the people of God. We need the body of Christ. And that's what we're here for. We are here to mutually encourage each and every one of us as we seek to walk with Christ closer and closer each day. Father, we thank you that you're here with us.
and you're speaking to every heart. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Chenway, lead us in worship. Everybody just stand and let's just sing this song together.